So, here we are mid-July, a good three and a half months after our sheltered spring folk conceived of this podcast. At the time, two weeks into California's shelter-in-place order, scrambling to find hands-on remote learning opportunities that involve more than just staring into Zoom space, the idea of doing a podcast about the intersections of human and nature during the pandemic seemed about as novel as the coronavirus. We hadn't heard any podcasts about it yet, so hey, let's use this project as a tool to contextualize and cope with all the new uncertainty and disruption. Fast forward a month, a month and a half, two months, with society feeling some heavy quarantine fatigue, the idea of a COVID-centric podcast seemed equally fatiguing. Nobody wants to hear about COVID anymore. And it's going to go away soon anyway, right? Yeah. No. My name is Alex. We're still stuck inside. Well, sometimes at least. And it's no longer spring outside. But you're still listening to Sheltered Spring. So here we are, mid-July, cases resurging, reopened economies dialing it back down, some of them at least, and we're all still in a barrel lurching and smashing down Uncertainty Mountain, hoping not to hit a tree. And then, of course, there's a lot more going on, too. Layer on the outpouring of activism since late May, with the Black Lives Matter protests against systemic racism and police brutality sparked by the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and too many others at the hands of police. I feel like humanity is just reaching right now, reaching out to see what and who it can hold on to, who it can trust, who it can rely on, and pushing towards what's next. With COVID, if somebody can let me know what's next, I'd appreciate it. By Friday, if possible, when I have to make some decisions about the fall. With the movement for Black Lives, the pushing towards what is next has included some good progress in certain areas, including casting a strong spotlight on injustice. Of course, there's a lot more to do. It's also brought in to include other voices as well, some of which deeply intersect both issues of the pandemic and racial justice. You may have read some of the headlines or delved deeper into some of these stories yourselves. Native Americans coming out and protesting in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. The Navajo Nation having the highest per capita COVID infection rate at the start of the pandemic, but then imposing strict public health mandates that have since flattened the curve to the point where they are now seeing a decline, while the rest of Arizona infections are spiking. Protests over the broken 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty from the Oglala Lakota Nation citizens at Trump's maskless Mount Rushmore 4th of July party. Congress passing the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Relief Fund, which provides payments to state, local, and federal tribal governments impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And most recently, the decision by Washington's NFL team to finally replace their racist and dehumanizing name and logo after decades of protest. These are just a few of the many stories out there right now. The indigenous people of this country have experienced extreme injustice since first contact with Europeans, and like other communities of color, have been hit hard by COVID-19. Here at UC Santa Cruz, we are on unceded native land. In the past year or so, many events, and most hikes and field activities that we lead on the Campus Natural Reserve, begin with a land acknowledgement, which I'll read here. The land on which we gather is the unceded territory of the Owaswa-speaking Yupi tribe. The Amamutsan tribal band, comprised of the descendants of indigenous people taken to Mission Santa Cruz and San Juan Bautista during Spanish colonization of the Central Coast, is today working hard to restore traditional stewardship practices on these lands and heal from historical trauma. 
In the past few years, I've met with stewards from the Amamutsin Land Trust's Native Stewardship Corps a couple times as they visited a piece of their territory that is now part of the UC Santa Cruz's Campus Natural Reserve. As the pandemic has been grinding on, I've been wondering how the stewardship program and the tribe itself has been affected by COVID-19. I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to speak with Chairman Valentin Lopez about this and to learn more about the history and present-day lives of the Amamutsin Tribal Band. I'll be airing the entire interview with Chairman Lopez, keeping silent save for providing occasional overdub context. We'll start with an introduction to and background of the Amamutsin Tribal Band, followed by the chronology of colonization periods. As you can probably guess, it's not a happy story, but it's an important one. Hope, however, comes in the form of the relearning efforts and stewardship that the tribe is engaging in on their traditional territory. And now, introducing Chairman Lopez. Well, my name is Valentin Lopez, and I'm the chairman of the Ama Mutsun Tribal Band. And our tribe is comprised of the descendants of the indigenous peoples that were taken to missions San Juan Batista and Santa Cruz. Our people have lived on the greater Monterey Bay area for 12, 14, perhaps 15,000 years or more. And if you think of that in terms of generations, that'd be 800, 900, and, um, or 1,000 generations or more. And so our people have been here a long time. And um, our creation story tells us that Creator gave us the responsibility to take care of Mother Earth and all living things. And for that period of thousands of years, our ancestors did that. And they learned a lot about um, how to take care of the plants, how to take care of the animals, how to hold ceremony, how to keep the land sacred, how to um, take care of the migrating geese and the migrating salmon, how to ensure that the bears had food resources year round, because the bears in our territory did not hibernate. The climate was mild and they did not need to hibernate. They didn't need the food resources year round. And it was our, the obligation of our people to make sure that the bears had those resources year round. As our population grew more and more tribal um, um, split off and stuff like that. So there's many, many um, tribal areas within, uh, within our greater territory of different tribes and, and village sites and stuff like that. And in addition, we had um, hunting sites and fishing sites and gathering sites and ceremony sites and uh, special ceremony sites for rites of passage and coming of age ceremonies, um, ceremonies for um, renewal and et cetera. So, so there, you know, there, there's quite a few sites within our territory. To our people, the most important things were having strong relationships within the tribe within the neighboring tribes and having a strong relationship with um, Mother Earth, with the plants, with the animals, and most importantly, have a strong relationship with the Creator. Um, that was most important. And then the second most important thing was our relationship with, with Creator. You know, we, our people, you know, understood that the land was, was um, the Mother Earth was made perfect. It was our obligation to keep Mother Earth perfect. And that's why we did not try to change rivers or build monuments or um, carve out materials out of Mother Earth to make statues and stuff like that. We just didn't do it. Mother Earth was made perfect by Creator, and it was our obligation to maintain its, its perfectness. And then came the, the tough times. The, the, then came the mission period and, and, um, and with the Spanish. And whenever they came in, a lot of people think they came to fulfill the obligations uh, excuse me, they came to evangelize in the name of Jesus. 
but they actually came to fulfill the um the the, the directive from the from the pope to fulfill the papal bulls and the papal bulls said indigenous people were to be put into perpetual slavery and that our property and our possessions were to be taken from us and the papal bull also said that we indigenous people had no soul so um Whenever we were raped, whenever we were enslaved, uh, brutalized, killed, um, it didn't. That was not a sin because if we didn't have a soul, it wasn't a sin. And there was four papal bulls, and the last papal bull said was known as a doctrine of discovery. And the doctrine of discovery said that the Christian European nations were to go out and discover the new lands and to conquer them. And to turn them into, the, you know, the territory of, of their nation, you know, that could be um, Britain, France, Portugal, Spain, etc., to turn it into their, make turn them into nations that belong to them. And then these nations were to be Christianized. But the doctrine of discovery also said if the indigenous people refused to assimilate, refused to accept Jesus Christ, and refused to accept the authority of that new nation coming in, that they were to be killed. And in the United States, over 100 million indigenous people died as a result of that papal bull. Of those papal bulls, there were four total. And those papal bulls still exist today. They've never been rescinded or rejected by the Catholic Church. And the papal bull and the doctrine of discovery, um, which said that we must be assimilated or die, that doctrine of discovery was determined by the Supreme Court in 1823 uh, to be the, the law of the land in, in the United States. And so that doctrine of discovery, you know, still exists not only for the Catholic Church, but it exists also uh, as a Supreme Court decision in the United States. So, um, and then that was followed by the Mexican period where there was a lot of brutality, a lot of death. And uh, we, you know, there was no labor force here for those big ranchos that, that they were making. You know, they wanted to establish uh, big ra uh, ranches of pigs and horses and cattle and sheep, etc. And uh, there, but there's no workforce to manage it. Some of those ranches, they'd have upward of 40,000 head of cattle. And so you need a substantial workforce to manage that ranch. And uh, there was no labor force here. And, you know, and so they would go out, capture Indians, you know, have them be in, turn them into slaves and have them work on those ranches for that purpose. Um, that was a brutal period for us. It also greatly changed our environment because those cattle uh, or the, the livestock, um, you know, they thought that our grazing grasses were inferior to the European grazing grasses. And so they brought in uh, the seeds for their grazing grasses and spread them. And... Um, and they quickly dominated our native plants because they grew a lot faster. They shaded out our native plants. And our native plants quickly disappeared. And those native plants represented our food, our basketry, our medicines, and um, all of our other goods. That's what those plants represented to us. And they were quickly destroyed. But that was followed by the American period. And, and there was great brutality. Uh, particularly as it relates to the gold rush, because we had these people seeking their fortune of discovering gold in California, and they were going up to the mountains, and then they were destroying those mountains. And when the Indians saw that, they started uh, to try to prevent the, um, the whites from going up there. 
And so the Indians, you know, uh, tried to prevent them. And all of a sudden there was an Indian problem. And so um, there was two solutions to that Indian problem. Um, one was to have treaties. And so uh, the federal government sent commissioners to California to sign, to develop petitions. And they developed a petition that would uh, give 18 reservations in California, north to south. And uh, that right there would represent 8.5 million acres in total. Our tribe was a signature to that treaty. And then whenever the treaties went to um, Washington, D.C. to be ratified, the state of California sabotaged those treaties. They passed a resolution um, within the, at the state legislature asking the president and the U.S. Senate to not ratify the treaties. And then they sent a delegation to Washington, D.C. To, to, lobby on that uh, to lobby for that reason. Not long thereafter, the president ordered that the um, Indian treaties of California be sealed for 50 years. And those treaties were never ratified. So, you know, from that time until the present, we have been a landless tribe and we have no federal recognition today. We are not a federally recognized tribe. California had its own solution to the Indian problem. One of the very first treasury bonds they passed was to pay for the extermination of California Indians. And then the money that was collected from that bond, approximately $1.7 million, and that was in 1981 money, so that was quite a sum. That was a slip of the tongue. Chairman Lopez meant 1881. Approximately $1.7 million was used to pay bounties to go out and kill California Indians. And it was also killed to pay militias to, to go out and hunt down Indians and to kill them. Your, um, this interview is, is, is happening in, in, in your territory, in Santa Cruz, and in, in in the Santa Cruz Sentinel newspaper in 1873 issued one of those legal county notices that said that the county of Santa Cruz will no longer pay bounty money for Indian skulls. And that was in 1973. So Santa Cruz was part of that extermination process of California tribes. And it affected our people greatly, as, as did all counties in California participate in that bounties um, for, for Indian scalps. There's many more um, uh, atrocities that happened to the California Indians. And uh, as a result, our population had diminished by well over 96% at the turn of the century in 1900. Our tribe from the 1900s up until 1965 lived um, alone under, you know, pretty much underground, um, not, not showing our faces to the public, not dealing with the outside world. Uh, we lived in tents as a tribe along t uh, rivers and creeks and streams, and we did a lot of the agricultural work, and, um, and we stayed to ourselves. Little by little, um, the economy in the Santa Clara Valley and Samuel, and Samuel Batista, Santa Cruz, um, the economy started changing. It changed from agriculture, it changed to uh, industry. And at the same time, a lot of uh, people were moving to California. The families were expanding. And so a lot of those ranches were being sold as ranchettes. You know, they divide a 100-acre or 200-acre ranch into 5- and 10-acre parcels and sell them so people can have their, their nice homes in the country. Uh, also, uh, the highways bought up a lot of the land and did a lot of division of the land and destruction of the land. 
and also a development. A lot of there's a lot of uh, manufacturing happening at that time, and so they would buy large areas of land for manufacturing, and so the economy of ag work really changed. And our people did not have the skills for that new economy. So our people ended up having to move to the Central Valley, mostly Hanford, Fresno, and um, Madera. And so that's where most of our tribal members live today. We started forming our tribal government in the late um, 1980s. And um, I was elected chair in 2003. And we've been working hard ever since then. In 2006, the tribal elders came to tribal council and uh, said that our creation story tells us that it's our obligation to take care of Mother Earth and all living things, and we need to find a way to do that. And that really shook council up. I mean, we're a very poor tribe. We do not own any land in our territory. The majority of members cannot afford to even live in our territory. And then you would look at the lands, and you know, a lot of them say private property, keep out, no trespassing. So what lands were we going to speak for in our territory? We didn't see a, a way to get there. But in our culture, whenever the elders say, you, we need to do this, that, you know, that right there is a directive and an obligation for us to find a way. And so we did what we always do. We prayed and we asked Creator to help us find a way to return to our territory. And that's when we were connected by, um, I got a phone call from Pinnacles National Park asking us to come on in and meet with it. They had a new superintendent who had just transferred in um, from a national park that he had a great relationship with the tribe, the tribe there. And he wanted the same relationship with Pinnacles. So he invited us to come in and have a say on the park and how it was managed and how the steward and how the plants were taken care of and, and how the wildlife was being taken care of. And uh, that was scary for us because we had lost so much of our indigenous knowledge that a lot of those, you know, you know, you know, how do you say this in your language? Is this a medicine plant or a basketry plant? Is this plant native? Um, you know, um, do you have a bear song? Do you have this and do you have that? And we didn't have answers, answers for that. And it was, um, it was embarrassing and difficult. Um, you know, but we talked about it at Conto, and we said we have to recognize that all three periods of the colonizers, the Mission Spanish period, the Mexican period, the American period, they wanted to destroy our indigenous knowledge. They wanted to destroy our culture, our spirituality, our environments, etc. So it's not our fault that we lost that indigenous knowledge. But to say at the same time, we have an obligation to regain that knowledge, to get that knowledge back. And so from that point forward, um, we've been working hard to restore the indigenous knowledge of our ancestors and how to take care of our landscapes and the wildlife, the animals, the, the water, the oceans, the coastlines. So we've been working hard on that uh, since, since 2003. In 2012, we developed the Amamutsan Land Trust. And the Amamutsan Land Trust is a main way that we uh, you know, we do, uh, we we got a uh, the, the it's a it is a nonprofit. So we're able to do fundraising and apply for grants as a nonprofit for the purpose of stewardship and research and education, and um, at the same time to preserve and uh, protect our our culture and our sacred sites. And so our tribe has been working very hard with um, through our land trust to 
try and regain the knowledge of our ancestors so that we can honor our ancestors and return to their path of, of, of stewardship of Mother Earth and so that we can fulfill our obligation, that sacred obligation given to us by Creator to take care of Mother Earth. So um, that's kind of a long way of talking a little bit about our history and, um, you know, and, and who we are. So I'll stop there, Alex. After listening to Chairman Lopez tell the story of his people's history, I asked him how he's able to deal with the historical trauma suffused throughout his story. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, you know, when I first started telling the story, I mean, when I, when I, you know, when I'd be walking away, man, I'd just be exhausted and worn out. And, and, and then uh, it, 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 it affects you, you know, listening to that really affects you. But then if things are going to change, we have to tell the truth. Otherwise, things will never change. And we need the next generation to be better than, this, than our generation. When the missions were, uh, were first opening, we, an elder went to the mission and he said, our people will suffer for seven generations and then things will get better. Well, I, be, I, I am the seventh generation and I believe it's time for things to get better. So as a tribal chair, I have a real obligation to make sure that things will get better. And one of the ways to get better is to tell our true history, to tell the truth of our people and to find ways for our people to return to the land and take care of it and steward it as our ancestors did, to restore our ceremonies, to restore our spirituality, and to restore landscapes. I mean, it's not only our people who suffer from historic trauma, all the animals suffer from historic trauma too. I mean, you know, we, you know, so many, most of our members have diabetes because of the current diet. Our body's not equipped to deal with spaghetti and potatoes and that, yet our native food plants are gone. You know, you know our land trust is working very hard to restore our traditional food plants so that we can start, you know, so that, you know, and, 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 and for, for our members. Um, and that's what we're doing. But the, the, those, uh, the wildlife, they need those native plants too. To, you know, to restore balance to their diets and to their life and stuff like that. So, so we see, I mean, it's a difficult story to talk about. It's a difficult issue to deal with, but it's something that must be done, and that's what we do. Chairman Lopez went on to explain the four goals of the Amamutsin Land Trust. Well, the four goals of our land trust are education, an education of our tribal members to restore that indigenous knowledge, but also education of the public um, to let them know that our people were not hunters and gatherers. It's insulting when people say that, you know, that, that we were hunters and gatherers. Our people were very sophisticated land managers. They knew how to use fire as a tool to manage landscapes. They knew how to take care of the seed plants and how to take care of the, the nuts and the, and the, and the berries and the um, for example, the, 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 the Forbes, there's um, eight different kinds of California Indian potato that nobody knows about because those were among the plants that were wiped out, you know, intentionally wiped out during the Spanish mission period and, and continued through the Mexican period. So we're working hard to restore our native plants so, so we can restore our, our diets and not only our diets, but the diets for all wildlife. And so uh, that's the education part of it. Um, and then we have research. You know, at first we were really hesitant to work with Berkeley or UC Santa Cruz on any archaeology kinds of work. But what we learned is that archaeology can tell us a lot about what the landscapes look like 
just before contact so that we can try and restore those plants back. You know, like you know, whenever we did a study, we found charcoal, and so we dated the charcoal. And there's quite a bit of it, and we dated the charcoal, and it showed that the, uh, our ancestors burned, you know, with a frequency of between every seven and ten years, and they would burn whole landscapes every seven to ten years. Uh, lightning strikes only happen in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Lightning that starts a fire only occurs about once in every hundred years. And so that frequency of fire was not an accident. It was intentional. And our ancestors would use fire, you know, to manage those landscapes. Another example is they kept the coastline. The, the California coast in the, in the central area of California was a coastal prairie. When you drive through Santa Cruz today and look at the mountains and stuff like that, you see the redwood trees and stuff, and you go, man, that's just beautiful, you know, but that's not the way it looked like. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a coastal prairie. And that right there represented one of the most biologically diverse landscapes in, in, in North America. So, you know, so our people were very, you know, so the research is showing us a lot of how our ancestors did. And now we're doing a lot of research on the coastline, and we learned that our people intentionally stewarded and took care of the shellfish, took care of the seaweed. And, and took care of the sea mammals, et cetera. So we're trying to um, restore that practice of our ancestors as well. And that, you know, again, that was the benefit of research that so we're learning this stuff. Uh, the third goal of our land trust was to develop a stewardship core so that we have our, our tribal members can return to the land to study that indigenous knowledge of how to take care of our native plants and take care of the, of the, the traditional landscapes and to restore those traditional landscapes um, for future generations. And so we have a stewardship core of 10 people now, and we hope to grow that by quite a bit, you know, going forward. And, um, you know, just to restore that knowledge and to do um, traditional stewardship on the lands. And then the fourth one is to preserve or protect our cultural sites, our spiritual sites to restore areas where we have uh, uh, larger patches of our native plants so we can take care of those native plants and restore our food plants, our medicine plants, our basketry plants, and restore those plants also for wildlife. So that, that's what our stewardship program is, and that's what our land trust does. So that's an important area. Like many other communities experiencing poverty and a disproportionate lack of services, Amamutsin tribal band members have been greatly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic shutdown that's gone along with it. Whenever the, the counties of San Mateo County and Santa Cruz County, uh, when they ordered the, 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 just the, the shutdown, I'll call it, you know, just a stay-at-home order and, um, and such, all of our stewards went home. And, um, and they applied for unemployment, you know, cause, cause, because we knew that we weren't going to be able to you know, bring them back to work for, for a period of time. And then we, we told them initially that we'd, we would bring them back in June. But it looks now, you know, our, our stewards, they live together in a house. And they eat together and uh, they work side by side and such. And we just didn't feel it was safe for them. And at the same time, they didn't feel safe there either. Because we have um, stewards coming from Napa, from, um, um, 
from the Santa Cruz, from the Marina in, in, in Monterey County, the, the town of Marina, from Hanford, um, Fresno, Madera coming in. And uh, they just didn't feel safe uh, knowing um, that, that someone was not infected with, um, the, with the virus and stuff like that. So they stayed home. And as I said, we were going to return to work in, in June, but now it's looking more and more like um, the second week of July is when we come back. So we're kind of tentatively scheduled for the second week of July for our stewards to return to the field. And then at the same time, we're doing a lot of prep work of how they're going to live. They'll probably be living outside in tents versus in the house, as an example. You know, and the meals will be probably, you know, majority of the meals will be served outside or when they're in the house. They'll have, have to have six foot of space in between each other. And then the way that work is assigned, you know, they'll, they'll be assigned um, um, to work at different locations with more space between them and stuff like that. So those are a lot of the ways that we're addressing the, 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 um, the work environment for our stewards. How our members are affected, though, is quite another matter. You know, we have a lot of members living at or below poverty, and we have a lot of members who, um, who worked, um, but basically worked paycheck to paycheck. And so when the paycheck stops, uh, you know, and they, and they have a family and they need, with young ones, you know, they, have, they could have four kids with young ones in diapers and um, <clears throat> or special medical needs and stuff like that. Um, they're really hurting. And uh, recently we put out a, call, a, a GoFundMe um, call asking for help um, for our members to buy food, um, to buy special equipment like um, specialty foods for their, you know, for, for, to deal with medical issues. I mentioned diapers. Um, they also order help with rent or um, um, utility costs and um, or transportation just so they can get to the doctor's office and stuff like that. So those are those are critical needs for our tribal members now. And so, um, you know, we have um, a lot of our tribe. We have some tribal tribal folks who work in the social services area. So they um, started looking into the various areas where our members were. And looking for ways to to you know use the services that are available, how to apply for Native TANF, which is a um, an assistance program for Native people. You know how to apply for food stamps, how to apply for medical assistance um, for you know um, medical programs. But then also you know if they need help with um, dry, you know, getting to a, a doctor appointment and stuff like that. Um, we have two of our members who live in wheelchairs and don't have the mobility to get around, and they're really stuck now. So we, you know, we have to provide assistance for you know. So we're providing assistance to get them to their appointments and back. A lot of our members really um, stepped up to to help our other members just to fill out applications, or to wait in line with them to apply for this service or that service. So I'm really proud of the way our members have stood up, and. Um, and then we do, um, because of the GoFundMe account, we are able to, to provide food to a number of families. I think right currently we're applying, helping to provide food for 12 or 14 families 
um, you know, um, to, to help them uh, get by. So, so the, the COVID-19 um, pandemic has, has affected our tribe in a big way. And, um, and then a lot of us, like myself, for example, I mean, we are just staying home. I mean, you look at the risk factors of the COVID-19, you know, diabetes, I have that. Um, um, asthma, I have that. Heart problems, I have that. Um, obesity, I have that. You know, I mean, so, so, so knowing that I'm at such a high risk for that, um, um, for that disease and stuff like that, I, I'm being very careful just staying home and stuff. And, and uh, you know, we have Zoom now and other services like that, um, that we're able to get a lot of, you know, we're still working very hard and, and, and trying to accomplish a lot. But uh, it's a much different world now than it was um, um, pre-virus, that's for sure. Despite their best efforts, the Amamutsin Tribal Band is not a federally recognized tribe. Because of this, they are not eligible for financial assistance from the CARES Act. I asked Chairman Lopez if there was any kind of governmental assistance available to his members. Zero. We would get you know, no, no assistance whatsoever from the federal government or the state government. Zero is what we get. After hearing Chairman Lopez speak, you may be wondering how you might be able to help the Amamutsin during this challenging time. There's two ways that people can help us if, they're, if they'd like to. One is to contribute to the um, GoFundMe account, and they can find that at Amamutsin Families COVID-19 Relief Fund with the GoFundMe. And if they could help, you know, go to that GoFundMe account and, and make a donation, that would be greatly appreciated. And then the other thing that I'd like to let people know about is currently our most sacred site is at the very southern part of Gilroy. And it's known today as Sergeant Ranch, but it's known to our people as Eurostock. And it's where our most important ceremonies were held at Eurostock. And currently there's a proposal to do sand and gravel mining of four of our most sacred mountains. And we're fighting hard. And so we'd like people to go to our website and uh, sign uh, and sign our petition. And the website was um, protect, and then it's Eurostock, and that's spelled J-U-R-I-S-T-A-C, Eurostock. And they would sign our petition, and then stay involved by um, by returning to protect Eurostock site and getting updates on a regular basis. Soon the draft EIR will be out, and we're going to ask a lot of you know, people to please write letters to the county and let them know that it is not acceptable to destroy um, the sacred sites of Native tribes. This is another thing about being a, an unrecognized tribe. Uh, none of our traditional sites have any protection in, in law. I mean, the state at the state level or the federal law. Uh, none of our sites have any protection. So what we're left with is trying to Ask for the, the, the public's help in getting us to protect that site, and that's what we're going to. As July rolls into August and summer spins towards fall, we spin too. We're not sure what comes next, and nothing is coming easily these days. Even though we can't get close to each other, maybe we can find some ways to prioritize humanity. Both definitions. The human race as a whole, 
and compassion and benevolence too. Check out the episode description for links to the Amamutsun Family's COVID-19 Relief Fund, the Campaign to Protect Eurostock, and the Amamutsun Land Trust. In our next episode, we will continue exploring Native American issues as we talk to Dr. Rebecca Hernandez of the UC Santa Cruz American Indian Resource Center to hear about the center and about how our students are coping with the pandemic. I'm Alex, and thanks for listening to this episode of Sheltered Spring.